You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. The woman with the issue of blood had to push through a crowd. And while she was pushing through the crowd, Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house to heal a 12-year-old who had died. And the servants of Jairus had to come find Jesus, and the woman in the crowd had to push through to get to him. And I've always wondered why Jesus would be that way, like that he would wait until somebody tries hard to find him. And as we were worshiping today, it just dawns on me that the healing process doesn't begin when Jesus finally says you're healed. The healing process begins when we start to press through. And for some of us, the crowd that we have to push through is our own excuses. The crowd that we have to push through, there are three kinds of people in the room today. One, you're dying because you're crippled under the thought that what has happened or what might happen is going to permanently define you. Two, you've actually psychologically caused yourself to believe that you're fine when you're not. And three, God is giving you the grace right now to say, if it stayed this way for the rest of my life, I believe that you could bestow grace on me. And not only can I survive through it, I can thrive through it and speak out of the well of that thriving to other people who are dying. I'm going to read some text. I want everyone to stay right where they are. And when I'm done, I'm going to talk to you for a little bit. And then I'm praying that these altars will become full and people will be healed today. We're going to read part of what's called the Liturgy of the Palms for Palm Sunday and also part of the Liturgy of the Passion. I specifically chose these texts today. I don't normally do that. I normally preach with whatever has been given. But today I chose these because I feel like I'm taking these stories out of context on purpose. I feel like God wants you to hear these texts today. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to speak and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And I want you to know, they were worshiping him for the wrong reasons. What did it say? They were worshiping him because of the mighty works they had seen, not because of who he was. And Jesus, when their praise is criticized, accepts it anyway. He himself said, you only follow me because you saw your fill of the loaves. Paul is the one who said, our fathers saw great signs in the wilderness and still disbelieved. Worshiping him because of mighty acts is not why we should be worshiping him. We should be worshiping him because Jesus is by himself the mighty act of God. Amen. 
And even when we worship him for the wrong reasons, if somebody dares criticize our praise, Jesus is the first one to defend it, even if it's wrong. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, who's a jerk. And he couldn't find anything. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I pray that we would all be able to see Jesus the way Pilate initially did. I will therefore punish him, but I'm going to release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Ironically, Barabbas' name means Bar Abba, son of the father. Release to us the imposter son of the father, but we don't want the actual son of the father because the more he talks, the more we're convicted. <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? Listen, the minute we don't negotiate with terrorists, the minute we start negotiating with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we're headed towards disaster. The minute we start to negotiate with the words in us that say, you know what, you, God told you something, but then all of a sudden terrorists start to come and say, maybe people are disagreeing with you, maybe you didn't see it the right way. We don't negotiate with that because this is what happens. I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent. We bow under the tyranny of the urgent all the time. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. Holy Spirit, I'm going to offer to you today a pathetic attempt to preach, and I pray that you would receive the words that I say today. I'm saying them to you, not directly to the people, and I'm asking that you would receive my words like you received the loaves and fishes, that you would take them and redistribute them from my mouth to the people's ears so that everyone in here can be fed. We thank you, and I ask that your revelation into the individuals in this room would go beyond the words that I'm able to say today. In your holy, precious name, amen. You all may be seated. We just had our 19th Eucharismal Revival service. And on the 18th one, the Lord spoke to me literally in the middle of me beginning to open. God gave me a word. In real time, I feverishly wrote it down and felt very, very strongly that that word should be spoken that night and then spoken to the church today. 
because I believe it can heal. And I stand very confident this morning knowing that God has spoken to us. He's going to continue to speak. And there's going to be freedom in this room by the time we leave. Do, there's going to be a lot of content because I, this is not a cohesive sermon. This is a fire hose that I want to spray over this room, and not every piece is for everybody here, but there is something for everybody here in all these pieces. So don't receive this like that typical one, two, three kind of point sermon that crescendos at the end. Receive this as there is a lot of seed going out. Push through the excuses. Come out from behind the trees. If one is you, let it be you, and don't be ashamed. We have prayed over this room. I trust that the Holy Spirit is here, but I also trust that while there might not be an enemy in the physical room, there is one in our head. I've prayed that the Lord would silence his voice. But please understand, coming from your pastor, this is a word for you. You will leave here today, and part of this will be for you. It will be. And if it feels like it's not, that's your fight. It will be. And I promise, I will not speak like this over every message. I talk to you about normative and outliers. This is an outlier. This is a different kind of message. Palm Sunday is not the Sunday to make things really personal, like in-house stuff. You don't do that on Palm Sunday. You don't do that on Easter. But the reality is you do it when God tells you to. And today he's telling us to. Restless living is a life lived in avoidance of or under the tyranny of our sinfulness. I'm going to say that again. Restless living, not being able to rest, feeling restless. Restless living is a life lived in avoidance of pretending it doesn't exist or under the tyranny of our sinfulness. We're restless when we try to avoid the fact that we're sinful or when our sinfulness is dictating all of our life to us. We cannot rest, we cannot Sabbath, we cannot sit still in God when our sin is either something we are avoiding or something that is always speaking louder than the whisper of the Holy Spirit. Rest does not come from amnesia living or self-secure living. Rest does not come when we try and forget the fact that we're going to jack it up tomorrow. Rest does not come from trying to find personal security, personal affirmation, trying to make the next event the best event. It doesn't come from that either. We exhaust ourselves trying to find ways to live oblivious to the fact that we sin. We live more disgusted with the fact that we sin than Jesus. Here's one you probably won't hear too many pastors say. Part of our problem is not that we don't serve Christ, it's that we don't let him serve us. Yeah. 
How can I say that? The way he wants to serve us is to wash us. And to whatever extent we cover our grime or act like it's not there, we prevent Jesus from serving us. Because he wants to wash. We have to let him serve us. Which means we have to let him see us. The title of the message today is This Is My Best. Palms today will be the ashes I put on your forehead next Ash Wednesday. Because that's how fleeting our praise can be. Our praise will turn to ash. And our ash will be turned into a cross by Jesus. And we have to let all of those things be true. When life, like the loaves and fishes, is not enough, do we offer our not enough to God and say, this is the best I can do today? The boy came to Jesus with not enough. And Jesus said, all I want from you is you're not enough. You feel like your parenting isn't enough? Jesus wants it. You feel like your past isn't enough? Jesus wants it. You feel like the sins you committed 20 years ago make you not enough? Jesus wants them and he wants you as you're not enough. He doesn't want your best. He doesn't want the part of you that is enough. He wants the part of you that isn't enough and he wants you looking at your lack and saying, this is the best I can do today. That's where freedom lies. Freedom doesn't lie when I do really well and I feel good that God is happy with my well. My freedom lies when I can't do well, I try to do well, I fail to do well, and Jesus says, give me that mistake, and I give it to him, and my praise has become ashes, but Jesus takes my ashes and turns it into a cross and says, your worst has now become my best. You're free. We're just barely getting started right now. Here I am, Lord, is the only honest thing we will ever be able to say to God. Abraham, here I am. That's the only honest thing he can ever say. Here I am. Stephanie said it last week. God wants our heart, not our heart on a good day. Not our heart when it's done really well. Our heart any minute of any day, no matter what its state is. Here I am is the best way I can praise God. Here I am. I messed up this week. God, here I am. I, didn't, I wasn't respectful to my wife. God, here I am. I'm plagued by mistakes I made 10 years ago, and I'm in the valley of depression right now over it. But here I am. That's all he wants because that's not what Adam and Eve said they hid. And he doesn't come pull them out from behind the tree. He speaks to them because they need to say, here I am. They need to say, here I am. Honestly, it's the hardest Christian thing to say. How you doing today? I'm blessed. It's easy. It's easy to lie. <laughs> How was your week? It was great. It's easy to lie. When people ask you those dumb questions like, how's your walk? I hate that question. <laughs> how's my walk? Nonetheless, when we say it's good... He doesn't want us lying. Listen, I know you're here today. 
if we're going to be complete. Like right now, there are some of you, because we're about to get into some real personal content here. There are some of you right now already checked out. This is not the kind of message that's for me. Listen, let me do it for you. Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus right now. Let me take care of that for you. Some of you are here already trying to figure out what it is and how you can fix it. Let me take care of that for you. You can't. Some of you are here saying, I'm going to get hit today, and I'm going to get healed today. And let me say this. If that's you, please pray for the person next to you because I want everybody saying that. Call me out and heal me is what we should be saying to Jesus. Listen, I have looked at this message quite a bit because I want to say it without crying because this has brought me to tears numerous times this week because it's freeing and it's, it's doing what Jesus says in Jeremiah to me. It's tearing me down and building me up. It's uprooting me and it's planting me as we speak. I'm sharing with you what's happening in my life because it's the most honest sermon I can ever preach. If you want a pastor who's not the first one at an altar call when there is one, please leave. I don't want my elders to feel like they're not supposed to come to an altar call because that's not good leadership. Repenting in front of everybody, being open to the Holy Spirit in front of everybody, being humble in the Holy Spirit in front of everybody is the best leadership. I don't care if you're a department leader, whatever, whatever. Today, today this is a big living room. Is that okay? All right. I was going to just let you off the hook, but you said yes, so I'll continue. The people say Hosanna, and it translates a week later into crucify him. And Pilate says, I find no fault in him. And that translates minutes later to crucify him. Both start out really well. Hosanna, and I find no fault in him. And they both end up with crucify him. My spiritual director, a person that I am... Making him earn his money more than anybody probably ever in his entire life. Buckle up, brother Randy. Bill is here. And anything you've ever learned is going to be tested because you said yes to this. One of the things he said to me is, Christianity is supposed to feel like chains coming off, not I hope I do not get this wrong. Christianity is supposed to feel like chains coming off, not I hope I do not get this wrong. Man, I hope I learn to preach a message like that in one sentence one day when I grow up. There's a religious spirit that says you're bad because you get it wrong. I'm trying to make that as simple and clear so you can recognize that dark voice very easily. There is a religious spirit that says you're bad because you get it wrong. Your badness is linked with your inability to perform. There's a social spirit that says you're good because you've been agreed with. We will be tyrannized by these two spirits 
and made to live restless lives. A religious spirit is always saying you're bad because you got it wrong. The religious spirit never says if you get it right, you could be good because the religious spirit knows we know too much for that. I'm not going to get it right. The religious spirit points out what's true of us and makes a false. What's true of us is we get it wrong. What's not true of us is we're bad. He takes a truth and makes a false a truth. The truth is you get it wrong. The lie is you're bad because you get it wrong. And then the flip. You're good because people agree with you. When people agree with you and you feel better and you feel more right, it's because you're being tyrannized by the religious spirit that says consensus is morality. Consensus means if if my kids think I'm a good parent, then I'm a good parent. If my employees think I'm a good boss, then I'm a good boss. If my church thinks I'm a good pastor, then I'm a good pastor. And we could be tyrannized by that where our our value is not in anything related to God or even our effort. Our value is in relation to the last thing we did that people agree with. The religious spirit says you're bad because you get it wrong. The social spirit says you're good because you're agreed with. But the Holy Spirit says... Offer me your best at any given moment. Whatever your moment is, offer that to him and it's acceptable. Throw away any sermon you've ever heard to the contrary, it's not good. At any mo- if you have to wait until you've gotten it right to then go to the Father and say, now I can offer you my praise, you will either be lying or not praising for the rest of your life. We have to be able to say, in good moments, we're, we're hot and it's going well and we feel passionate. Lord, here I am. And we have to say, in horrible moments of despair and depression and sin and fatigue and brokenness and embarrassment and shame, Lord, here I am. Because in both, his response is the same. I accept it and I love you and I'm thankful for it. That's the truth about Jesus. That is the truth about Jesus. And anything other than that is a lie about Jesus anything. See, there's this phrase in the Bible that says, and I'm so excited because Stephanie and I seem to be quite on the same page these days, and we don't talk as much as you would think. Like, we're getting this right totally by accident, which is the best way to get it right. God said, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And here's the false teaching on that. Please hear this. The false teaching on that is Abraham wasn't righteous, but God counted him as if he was. You have no money in the bank, but when God looks at your bank account, he treats it as if there's a million dollars in there. First of all, we couldn't come up with a sum of money that's enough to reveal what God actually sees in there when he looks at us. It's priceless. God, or we'll say the accounting ledger, even though it, was, it wasn't reconciled, God counted it as if it was. <clears throat> when God said, let there be light, he didn't look at the darkness and count it as light. When God said, let there be light, there was light. And when God said, Abraham, you're righteous, Abraham became righteous. 
God didn't have to count him righteous. It's a flawed translation. The real translation, and here's why it will never work in the Bible, is Abraham believed God and God worded him righteous. That's the actual translation. God worded him righteous. What does that mean? It goes back to the phrase, let there be. Abraham said, God, all I can do is hope against hope. It's the Old Testament version of I believe, help my unbelief. And God says, let there be righteousness. And there was righteousness. He doesn't have to look at a bank account and pretend. He doesn't have to look at a mess and pretend it's clean. He doesn't have to look at what's spilled and pretend it's not. He speaks to the mess and says, order yourself. And Abraham became ordered just because God said it. That's what he's speaking over you and your past. He's not looking at your past and counting it as righteous. He's saying, you're righteous. And he's even saying, even when I look back there, I see a righteous person back there, even though I see you making mistakes. Just getting started, I promise. I'm not even close to closing. Don't worry. I'm going to preach a lot longer. Don't worry about it. I know everybody's like, oh, no, is he closing? I'm like, no, I'm not even close. (laughs) We're going to put this chart up there, and we're going to leave it up there for the rest of the service until we come to the table. Because this is the heartbeat, the center, the coal room of what God told me two Wednesday nights ago. Seven signs we are living restless lives. Again, restless living is a life lived either in avoidance of our sin, claiming it's not there, telling ourselves we're going to do better today, making up theology like even though I'm nothing, God counts me as everything. We don't have to do this anymore. There's something much more simple going on that is impossibly good. But first, we have to be able to hear what might be us because there's something about the nature of God that even though he's ready to heal, he wants us to come and say what needs to be healed. Because for God, apparently, Jesus never gets a prophetic word that somebody needs him. He waits until somebody comes and says, somebody needs you. And the reason is because healing starts when we start to pursue him. So seven signs We are living restless lives. They're not the only ones. I'm always going to get that person out the door. You know, I think there's an eighth. Yes, there's there's a 65th, okay? This is the best I can do. This is my best. Trying to make them general and specific at the same time. You try it. It's not easy. Number one, anxiety and despair rooted in our max abilities. What I mean by that is this. When you do your best, when you have a day where you've done your best and your best is not working, anxiety and despair that's rooted in that. Not anxiety and despair that says, I've yet to do my best. Anxiety and despair when we're willing to say, I've done the best I could possibly ever do and it's still not working. When our despair or our anxiety is rooted in that, we will begin to live restless lives. When you have seen your ceiling, 
when you have witnessed the best you can do, mom and dad, the best you can do, boss at the job, the best you can do, employee, the best you can do, pastor, the best you can do, congregant, the best you can do, friend, the best you can do, brother or sister, when you've witnessed the best and it still does not work, if our security is anchored there, we will begin to live restless lives by way of anxiety and despair because we've seen our best and it doesn't seem to work. That's one. Two, disappointment rooted in thinking we could have tried harder. Disappointment rooted in thinking, listen to me, not that it went wrong, but that it went wrong because I didn't try hard enough. Now listen to me. We have to get nuanced here. There might be a time where that's true, but I'm telling you, I have been a Christian and heard, been in five or six different churches. I've now, in the last two years, thank you all so much, I've gotten to travel to a lot of different churches, and most of what I hear, the children are in the room, so I won't use the word. But the idea that it went wrong, not because you're broken, but because you didn't try hard enough is a lie from the pit of hell because it will stranglehold you. Now, here's the thing. We have to, let's, let's adult together. Can we adult together? It's one of the things the millennials say, right? We're adulting. I'm, I'm asking our resident millennials here. Madeline, redhead, are we adulting? All right. We have to adult. I'm not saying don't try hard. Please erase that. Don't think that. I will not look at you if you come later on and say, you're saying we don't have to try hard. Please, God. I'm saying we have to try hard, but there is an evil thought that creeps up that every time we don't do it right, it's because we think we didn't try hard enough. And so all we ever feel is the obnoxious impulse to destroy ourselves and think if we tried harder next time it would work. But what if it's not working just because we're broken? Always thinking you didn't try hard enough will turn into hating yourself. And then you can't, you shouldn't, if you hate yourself, then guess what you shouldn't do? You shouldn't love your neighbor as you love yourself because you'll hate your neighbor because you hate yourself. There has to be a point where you rest in this. Listen to me. Our security doesn't come from anything else other than these two words, God's redemptive Love, and I say it that way, I thought for hours of how to phrase that. Redemptive love, not just his love, his love that says you need redeeming. So I'm not ignoring the fact that we're broken, but what I'm saying is his love is only experienced as redeeming love, which means we can only receive it if we know we need to be redeemed. But if I know I need to be redeemed, then sometimes I need to take the pressure off myself and thinking I could have tried harder. Maybe I tried my best, and I'm just waiting for my redemption to show up. And here's the thing. If you've been victimized by somebody who's literally trying their best, give them that grace too. What if the person you hate is actually trying their best? What if your kids are actually trying their best? And we're just maligning them with rules and anger and frustration, and they're actually trying their best. I can go on and on, and I won't. If it's you, you're feeling it. Lack of motivation 
rooted in yesterday's outcomes. Waking up in the morning and say, I did everything I could do yesterday, and it didn't work. What is the point of exhausting myself again today? What is the point of trying as hard as I can today when every time I try as hard as I can, it doesn't work? And we lose our motivation to try because we're out of breath and we're exhausted and we're beat down. And the promises of God don't feel like they're any closer today than they were 20 years ago when it was prophesied over our life. So what's the point? A lack of motivation rooted in yesterday's outcomes. Over-assessing, rooted in the toxic curiosity of did I get it right? My Lord Jesus in heaven, come quickly to save us on this one. The over-assessing after a parenting decision has been made, a ministry decision has been made. You talk to your neighbor, you know, down at the mailbox on a Saturday morning, and they had a problem, and you gave them advice, and then all of a sudden you spend the rest of your life wondering if you said the right thing or if you married the right person. I just jumped. Or if you moved to the right state or got the right job or if you should have had that next kid. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. The toxic analyzing of did I get it right will destroy you. Because Jesus is not asking that question ever. Because he knows. He knows. He knows we didn't. Spoiler alert. I'm going to give you the spoiler. I just told Rob to not give me the spoiler of Game of Thrones, which I don't watch. <laughs> and we have a meeting set up because you watch it. I don't know anything about Game of Thrones. I don't know anything about White Walkers or Khaleesi or... Jon Snow, I don't know if winter's coming or it's not. You know, I don't know. But I'm going to give you my spoiler alert. You didn't get it right. <laughs> I wonder if I said the right thing. No. I wonder if I, no. None of our decisions, even our right ones, they're never right enough. <laughs> they're good because Jesus' hands are on our wrongness. They're good because when Jesus touches our bad, he makes it good. Well, there's one person out there for everybody to marry. God help us if that's true. Because the minute one person got it wrong, the domino effect means none of us married the right person. It's impossible. The rightness is God gives you the grace to live with the one you married. Normative. I know we have outliers. (laughs) The amazing theologian Karl Barth said, young pastors, you will finally start to have fun when you realize preaching is impossible. A thank you. That was over-assessing, right? Is that the last one behind me? Over-assessing? Emotional impulsivity rooted in peace only coming with resolve. When we allow our emotions to start making decisions because we think that I'll finally feel settled when things are fixed. If it's still bleeding, I can't be fixed until it's healed. There is something called, and don't quote me on this, the peace that passes, which means that there has to be a max understanding I can have and then a peace that 
If that's true, here's what I can't understand. I can't understand peace when things are still not resolved, which means there can be, because there's a peace that it is logical to say when the storm stops, then we'll be peaceful. But there's my man Jesus sleeping in a boat that's being swamped by waves because he's walking around with a peace that peace is not the reality of resolve. Peace is the reality of God in things that are not resolved yet. We're about halfway done with the first part. Ish. We might still not be yet. I don't know. Chronic complaining. Not just complaining. Desiree, I love you with the heat of a thousand Tuscan suns. Not complaining. Chronic complaining. Complaining where you think your normal talk is normal, but when we all hear it, it's complaining. Complaining where when you compliment somebody, it's a backhanded slap. Like the cliche, I love you so much I'm going to pray for you because, and then you insult them, but it's positive because you said you're going to pray for them. All right? Chronic complaining rooted in celebration only being a discipline. If I had to pick one, this is not the most important one. But if I had to pick one that I would want us all to get right at the same time, it would be this one. Because at the very least, with everything else going wrong, we'd be having fun. <laughs> if celebrating, start with events and work your way down to just waking up and going, he's here. If celebrating on any level is always a discipline. See, Pastor Mark, I hated him for telling me that I have to watch every word that I say. And right now, I love him for telling me that I have to watch every word that I say. I need you to hear me. Because is it good to discipline ourselves to celebrate? You know what that's called? There's a theological word for it. It's called Sabbath. And I'm going to preach the chandeliers off the wall next week. I don't know if you know what next week is. It's kind of a big day. Next week, we're going to talk about what happens when we Sabbath instead of going to a tomb to anoint something that's dead. Because we spend an awful lot of our time trying to prop up things that stink. And God has more for us than that. Preview. Trailer, if you will. Spoil, it's not a spoiler alert yet. It's almost. It will be if people keep egging me on. I have no self-control. If dis it's good to discipline ourselves to celebrate, but if it's always a discipline to enjoy, then eventually the weight of your inability to enjoy is going to start to turn into chronic complaining. If it's always effort for you to enjoy, if you keep saying things like, you know what, I just don't enjoy this stuff, but I know my family does, so I'm going to try. Like, if you're saying things like that, you know, I don't really get excited on Sunday mornings anymore, but I know going to church is the right thing to do. That starts with maturity, but if that's only what happens, it's unbelievable immaturity. I 
a few times this has happened in my marriage. Like, I am thinking of stuff. Okay. I went to a conference, and they said, Pastor, do you have a band in your head? And I'm like, yes, I do. I have a band in my head that plays all kinds of songs, and I never know what to say. I have had a few situations where Jacqueline, believe it or not, wanted me to do something, in, like, out, like, I don't know, like, I guess, just to keep things safe, we'll say we go to the opera, which we don't, but that's just a safe... And so she says things like, I want to go to the opera tonight. And honestly, if the opera went away forever, I wouldn't even know. <laughs> what is that? If you love it, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. Okay, good. Me, don't like it. If it went away, I wouldn't know. So I have a few options. I could say, option one, I could say, I'm not going because I don't like it. That's not a good idea. I could say, I'm going because I know it's the right thing to do because you do stuff that I don't like. Or I could grow up and realize, here's a possibility. I could go and enjoy Jacqueline's enjoyment of the opera. I don't have to like it. I could like her liking it. That's when discipline has gone from, that's when celebration has gone from a discipline to actually part of who we are. When we don't have to get rigid and say, I'm going to deny myself and sit down with my wife and hear how her day was. <laughs> I just, the other night when we were watching the final of the March Madness, I heard Madeline say, I don't really like basketball, but I love watching Anthony get all hyped up for basketball. You got it. That's excellent. If celebration is always a self-denial, if you're always denying yourself to celebrate, think about that. You're not fun. And here's the thing. It's funny, but here's the reality. Honestly, it's actually tragic. It's actually tragic. Because God did not create us to just go through a vanilla, bland life. He created us to look at lilies of the field and mustard seeds and see the kingdom of God in the most boring, mundane realities of life. And if we can't, then we're going to have trouble worshiping him. And if we have trouble worshiping him, we're going to fall into idolatry because we're going to find something that titillates us. And usually, it's a vice. And then finally, and I put the seventh one here for everybody. I want to see it. Alien fatigue rooted in being all of the above, LOL, but for real. <laughs> Alien fatigue meaning fatigue where you say, I don't know why I'm so tired. I keep getting good night's sleeps. I'm drinking enough water. I'm healthy. I run. I work out. And I'm still tired. And I don't know why I'm tired. It's probably because you are have anxiety, despair, disappointment, lack of motivation, over-assessing, emotional impulsivity, and chronic complaining. <laughs> Listen to this. This will stay up behind me. But listen with your heart now. Jesus' love of us accepts what our hatred of ourselves rejects. Jesus' love of us 
accepts the things that our hatred of ourselves rejects. Every time you find something in yourself that you hate, Jesus says, I'll accept that offering from you. That's good enough for me. His love accepts the part of ourselves that our hatred over ourselves rejects. If this drones on a bit, I don't care. Adam and Eve hiding behind trees. What if it's not a story about how not to hide, but it's a story about what God always does when we hide? They hide behind the trees, and what does God do? He comes and says, Adam, where are you? Notice, when Adam hears God walking, he hides. But watch this. When Adam hears God's voice, he comes out. Who is the word of God? The minute God speaks, Adam feels the presence of Christ. And the things that made him hide are now the things that he can expose. Because he knows it's safe too. The minute God says, Adam, where are you? Jesus shows up. Before Adam hears that, there's no way I could come out like this. After Adam hears it, he comes out. And here's another little detail I realized. Adam and Eve covered themselves and then hid. We can delude ourselves into thinking we can cover our shame, but it doesn't change the embarrassment. Only the covering of God does. This is why God takes animal skins off of, uh, takes fig leaves off of them and puts animal skins on because he takes the fruitlessness off of them sacrifices an animal and puts the skins on them and says, this is how, this is why you can, blood is why you can come out. But that's not a story telling us not to hide. It's a story telling us what God does when we hide. He comes and he says, Dan, where are you? Bill, where are you? Desiree, where are you? He comes and he says, Carrie, where are you? And then we can come out. This is the best I can do, God. The best I can do is hide today. And he says, it's okay, I'll find you. We don't need to avoid because he's going to seek and save the lost. Joseph's brothers, at the end of this magnificent story, lie and say, Joseph, before dad died, he told us that you're supposed to forgive us, which is a lie. They lied because they know they're guilty. But what if this isn't a story about why we shouldn't lie about our sins? But what if it's a story about what God always does even when we try to manipulate him? Joseph's response, I don't care if dad said that or didn't say that. I know I'm in the place of God and I'm here today so that I can make you live. And your little ones. Even if you think your sins have now found their way down to the second and third generation, Joseph says, I'm not just here to give you grain, brothers who betrayed me. I'm here to give your children and your children's children grain too. I'm taking not just your sin, but the perpetuation of that sin down the generations, and I'm saving all of it. Not because you're lying and you're still lying and scheming, but that doesn't matter because my love transcends your manipulation. God, this is the best I can do today. The best I can do today is fake like I have no sin. And he says, don't worry. If that's the best you can do today, I'll still reveal myself to you. 
Peter walks on water? What if this is not a story that teaches us how to step out of the boat and step out on faith and walk on water? Because honestly, the story doesn't end that great. The story ends with Peter sinking. So what if the story isn't about how we're supposed to walk on water? What if the story is about God saying to us, you don't have to try that hard? You're exhausting yourselves. You keep sinking every week of your life trying to do for yourself what only I can do. I'm the one walking on the water, Peter. I was on the water when you still thought I was a ghost. I was in this storm before you even recognized me in it. You don't need to walk on the water. You need to invite me into that boat. And I'm going to let you walk on the water, and I'm going to let you sink, church, until you realize it is not your calling to step out of the boat. It's your calling to invite me into it. So stop exhausting yourselves trying to be super Christian. Take super Christian out back and shoot him. No one ever tries to walk on water again. Paul was shipwrecked and swam. He knows enough. Peter sees Jesus again at the end and doesn't skip across the water to him. He swims because he knows I'm not trying that ever again. Only Jesus can. And when we finally realize that our goal is to let God do the things that only God can do and us to invite that into our life, maybe we'll have a little bit more energy. We're so busy treading waters we didn't even need to sink into. The disciples can't cast out a demon, and Jesus said this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. What if this isn't a story to teach us how to exercise demons and evil? But what if it's a story that tells us when we fail to do the things we needed to do to deal with the evil in our life, Jesus still comes down the mountain and deals with it for us? Should we pray and fast? Will we have power in our life if we do to handle evil? Will we always pray and fast when we should? Will we then be powerless to deal with the evil in our life? (laughs) Let me make this really simple. If you pray and fast the right way, you'll have more power in your life, and you'll handle evil. If you don't pray and fast, you won't have enough power in your life, and you won't be able to handle evil. And if Jesus just sat back in that system, guess how much we pray and fast? (laughs) Here's the thing. I don't fast. But watch this. Has God dealt with some evil in the last two years in this church? Is he on the move? It's because even when we fail to do the right things, he still comes down the mountain and deals with it anyway. If he didn't, we would be miserable and we'd have a reason to be. I said that because some people are miserable and they don't have a reason to be. We would actually have a reason to be miserable. Pastor, are you saying that we don't have to do any of these difficult things? We can just, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying when God puts his hands on our bad behavior, he transforms it into Jesus' good behavior. What changes us is not trying hard. It's offering our failure to God and having God turn our ashes into a cross. We literally behave better not because we're trying to behave better, but because we're constantly giving Jesus our bad behavior and he's constantly working on it. Okay. We're getting close, and then we're going to pray. Doubting Thomas, 
What if this story isn't about not doubting? But what if the story is about what God, what Jesus will always do when we doubt? We kill ourselves for doubting. We all doubt. Here's the proof. Every time we sin, it's because we doubted. Raise your hand if you sinned today. You doubted. Because the reality is, if you believed all the right things about God, you would not have sinned. Because he would have been enough. You wouldn't have needed to make that extra comment. You wouldn't have needed to roll your eyes. You wouldn't have needed to say that thing under your breath. Every time we sin, it's because we doubt. Jesus never criticizes Thomas for it. He says, I'm going to show you my vulnerability. Here's my wounds. And he invites Thomas into his wounds. We don't suppress our doubt. We have to be honest with it. None of us have faith all the time. Jesus is the only one who had faith all the time. The Holy Spirit is the one who has faith all the time. When we doubt, he shows up and says, look at the wounds. Your healing is in these wounds. Your faith is in these wounds. Your best is in these wounds. The part of you you hate is made well in these wounds. Your cycle of doing really well and then crashing again is fixed and broken in these wounds. Your seasons of being on fire for God and then being dead are made alive in these wounds. Yeah, I know you doubt, is what he's saying to us. And I'm always going to show up. I'm going to let you doubt for eight days. I'm going to let you sit in it. Because if I didn't, you wouldn't be blown away when I show up and show you my wounds. God always expresses his love in delay. He always expresses his love in delay. And here's what I don't mean. I don't mean, that should excite us, that God always expresses his love in delay. But here's why it shouldn't excite us. It shouldn't excite us because that means that eventually he's going to do something. It should excite us because if there's a delay in your life, that is God's love. <laughs> Listen, I am not planning on ever selling or being really popular because of these messages. Don't care. Because I could easily say your delay is getting you ready for your blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying anytime God is delaying anything in your life, it's because he wants to show up to you in a unique way that he can only show up to you in that delay. The delay is his love. Not the outcome you're waiting for. The delay itself is God's love. Listen, you're talking to somebody who spent the better part of 35 years wondering, you keep telling me I'm going to be a pastor, and I'll tell you this much, the best, most rich parts of the ministry that I have to this church are the things God deposited in me while it was delayed. I'm not saying anything new for the rest of my life. I'm talking from the years of delay. It's when I knew he loved me, when there was delay and I was still okay. When there was delay and I could still be happy. When there was delay and I could still be joyful. When there was delay and I could still have good dreams and wake up happy. When I, when I didn't have what I wanted, but I have what I needed, and what I needed became what I wanted, so I didn't care if I didn't have the rest of it. That's his love. Yeah, we doubt. And he always shows up and bears his scars. Peter's denials. This isn't a story about how we shouldn't deny Christ. We know how not to deny him. You ready? Don't. Don't. 
It's a story about saying that when we deny him, Jesus is going to show up for us the way he did at the beginning when we first met him and we said, I'd never deny you. Peter, have you caught anything? Luke 5. Nope. I don't even know who you are. Please mind your business. After the denials, Peter, have you caught anything? Oh, it's him. And I'm swimming to him. He didn't just forgive me. He met me after my denials at the place where he met me for the first time. It's not a story about how not to deny Jesus. It's a story about where Jesus will find you when you do. He'll find you at the beginning. And then finally, Hosanna to crucify him. This isn't a story about how to only say Hosanna. This is a story about what Jesus does when we say crucify him. He says, okay. And he saves us from saying crucify him. John. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would now move and that you would reveal to us where we're living in shame, in depression, in brokenness, in embarrassment, in anxiety and despair, no motivation, Father God. I'm praying for everyone in this room, worship team, balcony, congregants. Lord, even if these seeds are already into our children and they don't know it yet, I pray, I'm praying for them too. I'm praying that there would be honesty in the room right now. And if we really know after all the laughing has stopped that we're not living the life that we can be living because we're enslaved to these feelings of not being good enough, of guilt, of not being able to enjoy life, of always having to deny ourselves to enjoy a ray of sunshine or a bird flying through the air. If we're tired and fatigued and despairing and there's no end in sight, God, I'm praying that everyone in this room would feel okay saying that that's me and trusting that you're going to heal today. Let's stand to our feet. Before we come to the table, I want to come to the altar. The worship team is going to play. I know it's a little bit of a long service, but I truly believe that we're right where God wants us to be. We're in this space. I'm telling you, I told the worship team in the office before, if this was all for one person and one person could come out from hiding today, listen to me. You, I'm talking to you, one person, you are worth all the effort we put into this all week long. You're worth every rehearsal. You're worth all of the sermon prep time. You're worth all of the prayer. If only one person comes to this altar and says, it's me, oh Lord. You were worth every bit of energy we ever put into this. I want you to know that. But I believe, Salem, that this, there's a lot of people in here. 
there's a lot of people in here. You're too busy trying to walk on water. You're too busy trying to kid yourself. You're too busy trying to find all the excuses. You're too busy trying to look prim and proper and right, or you've just literally given up and you just let every day happen to you instead of you happening to the day. I'm inviting you to the altar. I'm inviting you here now. I really believe that God is going to heal you if it's you. I'm inviting you here right now. I'm inviting you to come, and I'm inviting you to expect that God is going to do one of two things with you. He's either going to heal you, or he's going to give you the grace to walk through this just a little bit longer. In that delay, one of those two things will happen. I want you to believe that God is going to show up for you today. Not tomorrow. This is not going to be a process. I'm telling you, I believe God wants to show up for you today. I believe at the altar, he wants to talk to you right now, that you're going to hear a, a still small voice, a prompting, a feeling, maybe just a release that even though it's not okay, it's going to be okay. But just spend some time. If you're not up here at the front and you feel led to just come lay hands on somebody, encourage them, hug them, pray with them, deacons, elders, please, department leaders, if, if you're not up here, pray for somebody, be with somebody, Salem, let's just let the love of God show up here for a little while. There's nothing too important that we need to get to. Jesus is here for you right now. If you're feeling shame, he's here for you right now. I don't care if the music has to stop. If you're here on the worship team and you need to be at this altar, if you're up in the balcony, we don't care about slides. If you need to be at this altar, you be at this altar right now. There's no protocol. God wants to heal. He wants to heal you. He wants to touch you. There has to be something in our life that says enough is enough. Enough is enough. I need healing. Holy Spirit, I pray that you blanket this room. You see the faith of your people. You know every single sin that is wreaking havoc over our lives. You know every wayward thought that we can't get out of our heads. You know how we talk to ourselves. You know how the enemy is wreaking havoc on us. You know that we feel that we've handed things down to our children that are now irreparable and the thought haunts us every day. Father God, I pray that there would be the sound of broken water jars at this altar because people are meeting you at the well in the heat of the day and they're gonna leave here letting go of the thing they brought and going to tell people, I found someone who knows everything I've ever done and he's accepted me. Holy Spirit, minister to your people for a little while. Speak to them right now. I pray that they would feel a hand, lay hands on them, but it wouldn't be ours, it would be yours, Father God. I pray that they would know what it means to have Jesus reach out and touch their heart, touch that empty tomb, touch that thing that they're trying to anoint, Father God. Open yourself up to weep in his presence. Don't hold anything back. Open yourself up to yell if you have to. If you're angry, open yourselves up to give that angry shout. God, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. Whatever you need to do, God has made this room. 
this room is your prayer closet right now. Spirit, speak to people who are feeling shame. Speak to people who are defined by what they have done that they think is so wrong. Speak to people who are exhausted trying to be good. Speak to people who are exhausted thinking they should have tried harder, they should have tried harder, they should have tried harder, they should have tried harder. Speak to people whose effort is replacing your grace. a moment with him. Have a moment with him. If it's getting too crowded at the altar, it's okay if you want to be in your seat and just kneel down because guess what? When you can't make it to the altar, the altar makes it to you. Just let this moment happen. Don't let it pass you by. Don't don't let it go by. This is significant. Feel the Spirit say to you, through your pastor, as you are right now, I accept you. You're not dealing with the consequences of my anger. You're not dealing with the consequences of what you've done wrong, and I'm letting you have it. You're dealing with discipleship. You're dealing with sanctification. You're dealing with God putting you back together one piece at a time. I feel like there's people who need to detox this morning and just begin to let up the anger and the frustration and the, and the irritation and the restlessness. And even if you have to spend a few minutes whispering bad things about God out loud, I feel like the Holy Spirit's saying, let it out now because he can handle it. If you're angry, start talking about why you're angry. If you're disappointed, stop talking. Start talking about why. If you're bored, start talking about why. Tell him, God, I feel like you're not doing enough. God, I feel like you're always angry with me. God, I feel like I'm never good enough. God, I feel like Christianity's been oppressive. God, I feel like I've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and you're ignoring me. Talk to him. Talk to him. Talk to him. He's accepting you. He's making you different. He's getting you ready for Easter. He's preparing a place in you. If you have a prayer language, now would be a good time. If you have a prayer language, now would be a good time. Let it flow at the altar. This, like the book of Revelation says, the altar begins to speak. You're kneeling down at the foot of Jesus right now. We're coming boldly to the throne of grace. Lord Jesus, let there be healing. I pray, God, for those who think they're okay, for those whose opinions are keeping them from this altar. Just end it, Father God. End it now. Oh, that we would be a church of people who know they need to run to the altar all the time. As we get ready to come to the table of the Lord. I feel like God is saying two things. I've been, I've been praying for people, and I feel like he's saying this to the room. And this is so simple, but let it germinate. I love you so much. My love for you has never been more or less than perfect at any point. 
My love for you is your ability to feel loved. My love for you is your ability to love. And if you're thinking right now, this is going to get me through today, but I don't know how I'm going to get through tomorrow. Let me free you by telling you this. All God ever did was tell us to pray for daily bread. The thought that I might not get through tomorrow, I rebuke that thought. Today, you will always have enough to eat. Today, you will always have enough grace. Today, you will always have enough. You might get to the end of the day well. You might get there tired, but you will get to the end of the day because he's given you daily bread, and there will be bread for tomorrow. For some of you, this is going to be a process where there's actually been healing. There's hope. The clouds have parted a little bit. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. For others, please expect there's going to be some toxicity that comes out in the next few days. Our bodies, when there's something sick in it, we throw up. So if you start to feel all kinds of negative, please understand it's part of the healing process. It's going to come out. Connect with somebody in the church. Do not handle it by yourself. Do not handle it by yourself. Connect with your deacon. Connect with an elder. Connect with a friend. Do it. Blow up their phones. Fill their inbox. Do it. It could feel rough. Every time Jesus delivers somebody from a demon, everybody thinks that person's dead because there's a, there's a convulsing. There's, there's, a toxic, there's, a, there's toxicity that comes out. There's toxins that come out. Let them come out. You're okay. But let them come out with people. And here's another thing. I just, I'm going to pour out what I feel is in me. I don't care. I'm going to pour it out. You don't have to get over stuff. You just need to be healed from the part of it that has authority over you. Please hear that. If you've suffered a loss in your life, you're not supposed to get over it. It's going to be there. Because God made love real, and whenever there's loss, we feel it, because love is real. It's not that you, the goal is to not get over it. The goal is to heal in the sense that it will no longer have authority, it will no longer dictate to you how things go. You'll be able to worship him with it. You'll be able to feel the pain and go to him in prayer. You'll be able to have a flashback and come boldly before the throne of grace and receive new mercies and fresh manna and new life. But please don't think you need to get over it. I heard somebody recently say to me, I feel like God has delivered me from the loss, from the grief of when I lost my wife. And I felt bad for that person. He delivered you from the tyranny of the grief. But the grief is a good thing. Why? Because Jesus felt it at Lazarus' tomb, and Jesus didn't need to. He felt it because it's the right thing to feel. Don't get over it. Just get under his love. Don't feel guilty if you have a flashback and have a bad day. Ask God, what are you doing today in this flashback? Why today? Why now? Why are you slowing me down, God? Why are these thoughts coming up today? Don't assume it's the enemy. God's got more control than that. Please understand that your heavenly father is a really good parent. If you wake up a particular day and you feel great, store it. Don't spend it all. Tough days are coming. Like Joseph said, put one fifth of it away so that when famine comes, you have something to eat. Fill a journal. Don't fill somebody else's ears. Just have a good day. 
and write down about why it's great. Let a little bit of it out, but don't let everything out. Store some. Same thing when you're having a bad one. Store some. Don't tell everybody everything. Just walk with the Lord a little bit. Instead of 30 minutes, sit with him for 35 that day. If it's really toxic and dark, don't open your Bible. And just to get mad, say, Lord, can you read me today? I can't read today. Can you read me today, please? I can't write in a journal today. Can you write on me today? I can't enjoy this time with you today. Can you please enjoy time with me today? I'm telling you, I'm not throwing things out. I, I, this is stuff that is going to help us be emotionally healthy. Start with Jesus is winning when you have a bad day. Start with you're more than a conqueror when you're having a bad day. Start with this is for a reason when you're having a bad day. Start with God is preparing me for something when you're having a bad day. I don't want these old things that have been misused to never be able to be taken out of the toy box again. They're good things and we're just going to use them right. Is that okay? Don't systematize your heavenly father. Let him love you how he wants to love you that day. And if today's one of the days where God says, hey, you got some stuff stored up in there that's not good. Let's just, let's open these cans one at a time. Don't feel like something's wrong with you because God opened up something that you're trying to keep locked. Just let him talk to you about it. Here's what I can promise you. There will be grace for you to have that conversation with him. And you will leave that conversation a little bit more healthy than when you started it. Always remember this. The meal that God has given us is not enough to satisfy our hunger. Trust me, one little piece of bread isn't going to do it after a service like this. The juice in that chalice is not enough to quench our thirst. He shows us a meal that's not enough. And somehow, when we come to it, not enough sustains us until the next time we come to it. God has made himself the kind of God who wants to be remembered. And so we're going to come to this table and plug your story into this prayer that you're about to hear me pray. Put yourself in this story. Father God, we thank you this morning that on the night when you were betrayed, on the night when it all went south, on the night when your effort wasn't recognized, when your love wasn't repaid to you, when your care for the people at the table was met with the rejection of you. You took bread and you gave thanks and you broke the bread and you said, take this and eat. This is my body which is given for you in full measure. As often as you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. And after supper, you took the cup and you lifted it up and you said, Father, this is the blood of the covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, drink it in remembrance of me. And so God, today we come to this table. We come to the night when you were betrayed. We remember the fact that when you were betrayed, you loved. When we rejected you, you accepted us. When we denied you, you didn't deny us. When we doubted you, you had faith in us. 
And we come to this table, Father, and we ask for strength. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make this bread and this cup the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you would descend on every person in this room. And as they come to the table, I pray that they would be fed with strength, with daily bread, with hope, Father God. We thank you and we praise you. If you're, if you're serving communion, get there, push through the crowd, whatever you have to do. God might heal you while you push through. It's all good. We're going to try to come from the back to the front to the Lord's table, but just get to the table any way you can and, ex- and just come and eat and feast on hope this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.